Hello buddies, I'm Jeffrey. And I'm Maya. On today's mini-sode, we're revisiting our interview with our good pal Marcus for a special edition of Girlfriend, You Are So On. Attending, you know, uh, PWI is obviously hard for any person of color, but especially for Black students. And so I was wondering, has your university in the past or, you know, now with what's going on, have they done anything substantive to address what's happening, to make your experience as a Black student better? Um, and if not, what, what kinds of actions would you like to see them take? They have been really piss poor when it comes to race. Um, and it sucks to say that. And I don't know if it's because um, we make up such a small population of the university, but regardless of if that is the reason or not, um, they should be doing their best to make everybody feel comfortable. We've had, inc- we've had so many incidents during my undergrad where we had um, white people in libraries taking videos of groups of African-American students and posting on Snapchat and calling them monkeys. Um, we've had students in, uh, we've had a student or two in blackface with one of the like charcoal masks like, I mean, which I guess, you know, people wear them, but she then took it a step too far and was like making jokes about black people and whatnot. Um, and we have had forums with the university president and he was very combative every single time he would be in those meetings, very combative, combative very much um, there are good people on both sides kind of thing. So, you know, when only one side's the one that's doing, that's initiating the problem, uh, whereas the other side is just being. Um, so yeah, the school has been really bad when it comes to stuff like that. One of the things I really, really wish that they would do is force these professors to go through actual training. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of the training that professors go through is really just, oh yeah, here's um, these three online pieces that you have to go and look at. And there's nothing like that. They're, they're, they're very like basic, like, oh yeah, treat people nice, do this, that. But they're very like, you can just click right through and never read it. It's like the, like the, the terms of agreement page. You know, nobody reads that. They just click on through until they finish, you know, all the pages and then they click accept which is exactly what this university does, rather than forcing students to have to learn how to interact with students who might come from different areas of the country, um, even within the state, because Pennsylvania is a big state and the cities that are most known in Pennsylvania are Philly and Pittsburgh, who have very dense populations of African-American citizens. Um, So I think that's the biggest thing for me, just making sure that people who are going to be interacting with me are not coming at it with some kind of bias, or if they are coming at it with a bias, they've recognized it and they're doing what they can to fight that bias and give everybody to treat all the students the same, except when absolutely necessary. Yeah, I know 
in general, a lot of universities have been criticized uh, with their response to everything that's been happening. Like in my own personal perspective, the place that I did my undergrad was founded by a man who was a slave owner and the chancellor released a statement saying, you know, we condemn anti-Black racism on our campus. We want to offer resources to students, not acknowledging anything in the school's past, which was anti-racist or which was racist, um, sorry, not acknowledging any anti-Black racism that's been happening on campus since. And when they said they would provide resources, the only resources they provided were links to free online therapists. Like, <laughs> you really have to be doing more than that because I think for a lot of these institutions, they're realizing that they need to make some show of support for what's happening right now, but they're doing it in a way that's really surface level. While we're on the school subject, I was telling Maya before we got on the call that, and, and something that I think, you know, listeners should also take into perspective too, is not just to reach out to your alma maters in terms of what college or university you went to, if you did go to um, a college or university, but also making sure that you reach out to your school district, either the school district that you attended when you were younger or the one that you're living in now. So for example, the place that I went to for middle and high school, they have reached out to alumni, asking for them to join them uh, in a few weeks for a alumni uh, race relations discussion. That school had a lot of shortcomings when it came to race. It was a predominantly white school. Too often the school just didn't have enough professors of color. And if it did, they were often relegated to sort of like minor courses, um, not major classes that you know students all took. And that's unfortunate because I think that it's through the curriculum that a lot of students, uh, especially white students, end up finally like grasping what the experience of black students is like. Even, even in my, my university as well, they had courses that students had to take um, on race and a whole, you know, myriad of other uh, diversity and inclusion topics. But a lot of students, because those courses were mandatory, felt like they were infringing on their liberties and their, their educational freedom. You know, I, I still advocate for those courses, but I've also been a huge advocate of making sure that the actual curriculum itself across the board is diverse. So not only that you have, you know, Black professors and teachers, but also that the curriculum itself if it is being taught by a white or a non-black professor or teacher has a very big focus on highlighting the works of black authors, black historians, you know, for whatever subject it is. For whatever subject it is, I think that there needs to be a bigger concentration on making sure that the actual curriculum is diverse. Oh, yeah. And I, I like that you brought up um, not just higher education, but elementary, middle school, high school, um, because I know that the all of the teachers from my high school that I am head over heels in love with, still in contact with, um, who wrote me amazing letters of recommendation who always were able to pick me up, not being, you know, my outgoing authentic market self on days were my black female teachers. And I could not imagine 
had I gone through high school without those teachers, without my choir teacher, without my, my AP calculus teacher, without my, my media production and yearbook teacher, I don't know if I would have made it through that second half of high school because it was rough. And there, that was when, um, that was the year during that previous summer was when the Trayvon Martin shooting happened. Um, and I was, I think I might've been just a little bit more shaken up than other people um, because the first thing I told myself was I'm going to start looking, I have to start looking at colleges. I'm going to start looking at colleges and states where stand your ground laws do not exist. And the fact that, you know, anybody has to take that into that any child who, again, a child, okay, wasn't even 18 at the time. The fact that I was 16 years old looking at colleges that were in states that didn't have stand your ground laws, that should not be something that I should have to worry about. Um, and I think those teachers really helped me, uh, I guess, find myself through high school. But they also helped as far as the, the curriculum and making sure that students, um, that we all understood stuff. Our AP calculus teacher, she was from the Bronx. Like, she, she, she was fantastic. And because it was an AP calculus class, I don't want to say because, but the class itself was heavily white in a school where 60% of the population were African-Americans. But this one class, this class with 30 students in there, there were only three black people in the class. Um, and I was one of them. And she made sure that, you know, she would in the classroom give multiple real world experiences that we understood. Um, just because, again, we have very, very different experiences on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and it's so, it's so important for these students. I, I think that, you know, the point you brought up about um, classes on race, I think that classes like that should probably almost be mandatory. I know people don't want to have their rights infringed upon, but you have to remember, America has not dealt with what we have done to Black and brown people. We have not come to grips with slavery. Once slavery was over and we were all, you know, the, the free slaves had been, um, they've been free. They were promised 40 acres and a mule. And then Andrew Johnson came in and was like, uh, no, we're going to take that back, give it back to the white people. Y'all got to figure it out on your own. So we're already starting so far behind um, this. While white America have been constantly moving forward. And I think that, all of that has boiled to where, yeah, you have to start teaching the kids at a very early age um, about the actual, I, I don't know if race is the problem. I think it's history and it's a, it's a understanding of actual history and how this country really never did um, apologize and make up for their mistakes. I think just compared to past reactions people had to victims of police brutality, I think that now I've been seeing a lot more people who I'd never seen be vocal or take action finally take that step into inserting themselves into what's happening. Is that something you've noticed? And, and why do you think that might be? Yeah, my fraternity actually, they are 
doing a fundraiser like they usually do every month, the fraternity at my school, and all of their proceeds are going to an organization that, you know, helps fight against police brutality. They were very secretive about, um, about this um, fundraiser. It was only on the brothers' individual Snapchats, which is the reason why I saw it. And I wasn't a huge fan of the statement that the brothers had put out a few days before. But I was just so annoyed that I didn't say anything. So then I saw another brother post about the fundraiser. And I was like, this is the statement you guys should have made on social media. Not whatever BS you guys put up there. Um, and then three hours later, it was up on Twitter. And it was up on Instagram. And so that's one of those things where it's like, okay, even back when I was there and I would ask for us to, you know, get more involved in, um, you know, issues on campus, I was very much shot down a lot, which is super frustrating because the issues that I was talking about, they might not have been issues that, you know, affected them individually, but they affected me. But again, it is nice to see that people are, Finally, and it sucks that it took 2020, but it's nice to see that there are people who, again, would have never, you know, three years ago, they probably would have never said a thing, um, and they probably would have been completely against it. It's nice to see them come around. There's, um, there's something you said that I also really want to go back to and highlight that the problem isn't just race, more so a problem of history. I think that's a, a huge takeaway and something that I hope people start to kind of grasp. You know, obviously the, the main focus right now is on police brutality, but there are so many other issues that are intertwined, things that are oppressing the black community. What are other issues and demands that you would like to highlight now that you think need to be addressed by America and need to be addressed by white and non-black people um, in addition to police brutality? The biggest thing for me would have to be before profit prisons. That's really, um, that's the biggest thing for me because um, those prisons, they make money based off of the number of people that are in those cells. And what happens is that you see that there are, in this country, African-Americans make up 13% of the population, but we don't make up 13% of the prison population. We make up, at least, I think it was double that number, double, a little bit more than double, which right then and there should show that, okay, there is a problem because African-Americans and white people commit crimes at the same rate. The problem is, then again, and then we come back to the police officers. The problem is that you have police officers. It's up to them to decide whether or not to arrest somebody. And what you're seeing is that a lot of African-Americans have been getting arrested um, for low level, very low level offenses that white people do all the time. And they just get a, a slap on the wrist or a citation. Then even from there, you go into actual criminal justice. Um, where, you know, a lot of those people in there, they don't, they don't know the law. Um, not to say that the American people are stupid, but they don't know the law unless you are a lawyer or you are um, somebody who studies political science. 
And I, so I guess from there, making sure that people understand their rights, but also making sure that cops understand the rights that we each have as well. You know, um, understanding that if you ask somebody to search their car, you're asking one. And that if I say, um, I'd rather you not, it's my car. And then making sure that a cop understands that that is not, um, that, is, that, that is not unreasonable doubt. That is not, that is not suspicion. That is somebody who wants to keep their car. They, they, they just don't want you in your car. <sighs> there's, there's just, there, there's, there's been so much. And I think right now, the really, like I said, the really big thing is um, police brutality. But then that's also um, what comes into play is that you have the school to prison pipe. You know, um, Jeffrey, you, we talked on this earlier about, um, a, a, about race in school and what happens that you have these African-American students who are at who are more likely to be reprimanded at, again, higher rates for the same things that their white counterparts do. And at some point, those students, many of them end up just not caring anymore because they're constantly being reprimanded. And they're, a lot of them are even seeing that, oh, their white classmates aren't getting in the same amount of trouble for the, as they are um, for the exact same things. So I would, again, I would also like to see shifts in education that force teachers to really think about when and how they reprimand students. And again, addressing the fact that, okay, I've gone into this job with this preconceived notion that Black students are going to be the most trouble. I need to fight to make sure I'm not acting on that because that's not good for me as a person and it's not good for the students who could possibly end up in jail down the road. Sorry, I'm starting to start. I can feel my heart racing right now just because there's so, there's so much. There's so much. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave, leave you with those things. I'm going to leave you with those. Yeah, I think that's a good reminder to folks that as we've seen, you know, a lot of things happen this week and people have felt like it's more acceptable for them to get involved in movements supporting anti or supporting anti-racism and police brutality. I think a lot of people are also starting to one get like fatigued or feel like their lives are just gonna go back to normal. And I think this is a good reminder too that like, you know, for black people in America, this is what your life is like. You can't just turn off this trend, quote unquote, that's been happening uh, and go back to your life, like not thinking about things in the way that a lot of people are taking the time to critically examine right now. I, I like that. And just as a reminder that, like you said, this is reality for a, way too many African-Americans in this country. I cannot think of a time where a police officer has been around me and I have felt safe. Never in my, I've grown up with friends whose parents were cops. And when their parents would come to pick them up and they were in their cop uniform, I felt shit myself every single time. 
But then when it would be the weekend, and we'd go over their house and they'd be chilling and the parents are in the same type of clothing that we're all in, or they'd be coaching us for soccer or God knows what. I felt so, it, it was almost as if you had told me they were two different people. Just a reminder that, like you said, yeah, people, some people are able to go back to, you know, what they've considered normal and hop off this trend every now and then, but some of us can't. And to those who can't, I just want to say that, you know, it, it is okay to take a break from everything because we're all kind of seeing this fight that we've been in since the beginning of slavery. This is a fight that's gone on for centuries. And it's a lot for us in this 24-hour news cycle to watch that fight being constantly politicized for a brief period of time and know that there is a huge possibility that nothing will still will get done. Because we've seen it time and time again. Okay, so wanted to switch gears a little bit um, because it is also Pride Month and I think it's important to acknowledge like how integral it has been for um, the pride movement to have like black and people of color, queer activists and organizers on the front lines of this movement. So I was wondering, Marcus, as a gay black man, how you are kind of taking everything that's happening this month in. Child. <laughs> I love Pride Month. I love it. Last year was really the first time I had gotten a chance to really do do, do Pride. Um, the past few years, I've been very like you know combative with myself as far as my sexuality, or like that's usually when like high school graduations are, and so I'm like at my sister or my cousin's graduation, or I wasn't in DC at the time. With that being said, that I love Pride, there is a lot of racism within queer communities. Wish that the gay community could do a lot better about talking about race and realizing that when it comes to LGBT, it has been um, people of color, the queer people of color, who have been on the front lines always. I have a lot. Of, I have a lot of emotions about this, um, just because, again, being a black man in D.C., a gay black man in D.C., and kind of watching the gentrification of like my own hometown has been insane. There are white people living where I would never expect. There are gay white people living in places I would have never expected. Um, and what comes along with it is this over-sexual of gay Black men. Um, you're always expected to have a BBC or be this extremely aggressive person or, you know, be like this, like, thug who's, like, just got out of prison. Um, but you guys know me. That's, that's, not, that's not me in the slightest. Um, maybe the bit of DC might think so whenever I'm walking with Maya, but that's not the case. From a perspective of intersectionality, 
I wish that in both communities, we could come to terms that, you know, if you're excluding, like in the gay community, if you're excluding Black gay people, you're not being inclusive. And within the Black community, because there is a lot of homophobia in the Black community, certain family members, I still just don't, I don't talk to my mother about my my dating life, um, my sexual life, about any of that, just because she just doesn't want any part of it. Love her to death, but she doesn't want that. And so I constantly feel at this like kind of tug of war state between these two different groups that seemingly don't come together um, literally unless you are a gay black person. And then you oftentimes kind of have to choose a lot of times. You're told you have to choose. Um, so that's, that's my perspective on it.